Good evening, and welcome to the Dead Earth Podcast. This first season is an 11-story anthology chronicling the dead homes that people much like you and I live within. The Earth died long ago, and at first only a few of us realized this is the future that awaits us all. This week's story is Trotted Head. The decision to permanently settle atop a plot of land is perhaps the most violent act we have ever committed. My father once said to me with a sundown smile. The next day, I discovered his headless corpse in the kitchen. His hand was outstretched toward the back door, which had been left open, and now a seven o'clock gash of cosmic light warmed all his gory gristle as it led down the steps and into the garden. More chilling, perhaps, than the entire event was that no one was ever successful regarding the recovery of his head. Not myself, not the first responders, not the forensic specialists, nor the search dogs. I asked the Beagle's handler whether it was customary to use hounds to locate specific body parts, and she replied that this was, not the first time we've conducted a search on your street didn't ask whether she meant they had searched for body parts previously, or whether there had been another body minus head in such close proximity, not particularly wanting to know the answer. She was a young officer, probably around my age, so it could not have been all that long ago. Sitting in my suddenly solitary abode, I wish I had investigated her claim further. The grief came and went in bouts and I missed it dearly when it was gone, because anguish over my father's unexpected departure was the only mode I operated in as of late which could drown out the fear. Co-workers suspected that I opted to work from home due to a trauma-induced agoraphobia, and my local friends thought that I perhaps was not admitting visitors, even old friends I could identify from between blackout curtains because I did not want to risk a vile detachment of my most intelligent extremity. No, the truth of the matter was that while I admittedly worried some ill-defined killer of the night may claim my cranium as their prize, my worst fear was something far less defined. You see, my father had often dreamt of decapitation. Vivid snapshots haunted my mind of him in his bed, or napping on a couch, spittle bursting forth from between his lips while he gargled and choked and gasped and squirmed, his cheeks scarlet and then purple, his eyes and tongue growing fat and large to the point just shy of bursting. And then he would awake with his hands around his neck, his forehead, and hind and middle, and a relieved look would wash over his body and chill his heating face and he would smile at me and ask why it was that I was standing in the doorway with such a ghastly expression. He would never speak to me of these dreams in any real capacity. As a child, he would rustle my hair and name them as terrible things, nothing more. As I grew in age and size, and his chair-bound state prevented his reaching of my head, he would outstretch a shaking hand to rest atop my knee or my thigh, 
and croaked behind closed lips, preventing whatever reply contained within from eking out. As his mind enfeebled, he talked less and less. It is his befuddled state which made his words the day prior to his end so prominent in my mind. His initial excoriating of mankind was followed by a lengthy, delirious account of a place he had never once spoken about to me or anyone else as far as I knew. He said this mound of land was graced with well-defined features, rich soil, steep cliffs, and hidden recesses hiding gorgeous natural views sunk deep inside the ground. He said the locals were a kind and amiable sort, with dirt on their hands and trust in their hearts. They referred to this place as Trodheed, or Trudded, which I took at the time to be spelled out as T-R-O-D-D-E-D. He told me it was a secretive place, a place he had never seen referenced in any book or on any map, but that the locals liked it that way, and so he respected their privacy. He told me that I should come along, that together we could stay with Eustace at the Crown Inn, or walk the path down from the fields to marvel at the architecture of those few homes built into the sides of the cliffs. The grass there was red, bright red, the soil was blue or black, as often as it was pale brown. Most of my interjections amounted to a pleasant cooing. I was happy to hear him speak. Whether or not it made sense was no matter. Eventually, I humored him. Father? What? Where is Trodheed? That's the thing. It's through a little door. A gate? No, a little door, just south of here. It's a green door with a white frame, and it's located on the far side of a tunnel, one that runs alongside this house, where the train runs through. Think of that. The train just runs through. It never stops there. And that was the same little green door with a white frame which I stared at from across the subway tunnel not a week later. I had convinced myself that a walk would clear my head, that my frights and ceaseless pacing were the echoes of trauma, and that festering at the scene of the crime would do me no good. Without thinking about where I was going or why, I grabbed my winter coat that hung on the peg in the front hallway beside my father's jacket, and I stepped out into the gray flurry. I turned north and paused at the crotch of two streets, at the corner store run by a man who smiled, but never spoke. I was feeling for something, I think. Or perhaps I was just coming to grips with the fact that this wider inhabitants, with all its noise and its many put-upons, did little to ease the tightness of my throat. The city always felt like a second indoors to me, and the low-hanging clouds drifting down, a malicious ceiling, welcomed the comparison. I needed to leave. That was the thought which compelled me northward, through the temporary hallway beneath the pillars of scaffolding, past the living room display, up the leg of Barlboro Street, and found me sliding past the proximity doors 
into the din of a subway tunnel which swallowed me whole. The northbound and southbound trains had arrived simultaneously, and so upon their departure, I was alone. I was the only body with an intention to stay, to misuse this place of transit. There it was, waiting for me, as chipped and run down as the rest of the structure. The door was green and the trim was white, and it was certainly little, as it failed to usurp my midsection. I realized I had already leapt down onto the tracks. There were onlookers now, but I had to try. There was no other option. And so I grabbed the iron wrought handle and braced myself against the wet cement, white and pink graffiti underhand which read, Not really now, not anymore. The ground beneath me rumbles, and the train is accelerating toward me with screeching fury, signaling what I already know has been coming for me. People scream, and the acoustics of the tunnel cannot handle all this noise, and there's a downshifting in pitch which recalls the pits of mass graves with the writhing nearly dead. I note that this is a sound which is familiar, despite the fact that I've never been within a lake of corpses. My last fading hold on consciousness of thought about what it felt like to be forgotten. I wonder if my father had the same thought. I wonder if I'm about to join him. The door gives easily despite its appearance. I crouch through the portal and climb inside a warm, wet place. I shut the door behind me just in time for the rattling of the train and the screams of those who did not wish to watch a person die suddenly sound far away and altogether unimportant. I crawl along the unlit subterranean tunnel as it continues to narrow, feeling my way along walls which are rough and sharp. I think my palms are bleeding, and I knock my knee against an outcropping, and I curse it and the dark. My voice seems to float away from me down the tunnel, urging me forward, as though if I don't leave soon, I will not be able to follow. So I continue with urgency, limping along and then crawling, and now I'm sliding along my belly, and I'm sure that I'm bleeding profusely. And I notice that the walls of this cave are too constricted for me to turn around. I notice that the slick rocks prevent me from pushing backward up the way I came. And the way down, if it continues as it has, will soon have no space for me. And the ceiling is so low now that I can barely draw full breath. My blood crawls away from me, slicking the rocks and easing my descent. I begin to sob, but no sound comes as my voice has already left me far behind. The air here is hot and burns my throat. I wonder if my father, dead as he is, tricked me into crawling inside a furnace. I continue on toward my fate, as there is nowhere else to go. I need to leave. The way forward widens almost immediately, and the anxiety gripping my chest and my throat releases. I'm greeted with a cool blue light that has no apparent source. It reveals a second gateway, this one larger, though still green and still with white trim. 
It is not in disrepair. It is cared for and lovingly repainted or otherwise recently replaced. My hand marvels at the softness of the wood. And in the light, I can see that no, I am not bleeding. Though my hands are slick black with damp soot. There is a draft from beneath the door and it is cool and dewy and smells of space and freshness of life. I gently nudge the wood. I cross the threshold. I enter an outdoor space with no sky and no ceiling, but plenty of headroom. The earth before me is pale and rises steadily. It is oddly familiar in a way that immediately puts me at ease. I am home. The thought is an odd one, as I have certainly never set foot in this place, but I trust the feeling and move onward, leaning into the hill as I make my ascent. The ground is rough and pockmarked. The dim blue light prevents me from properly examining what I am trudging across. The pimples and pores which dot the landscape double as handholds for me to heave myself upward. I am gasping for air when I finally crest the hill and gaze upon the world before me. The dark, somber blue tones pulse across a rich, thick field of black and gray over which a bridge expands up toward twin recesses and a truly massive cliff face. It is unlike anything I have ever seen, and I am in awe, as though there was any doubt. The sign impaled into the field welcomes me to Trodhead. The word and the sheer impossibility of this remarkable locale hit me, and I suddenly miss my father so very much. Only he had told me sooner. Only I had pressed him on the issue, on the finer details of his wide-spanning existence. I imagine, in a moment of self-cruelty, another universe where I wheeled him into this place so he might set his eyes upon it once more. I smile down at him and he up at me, and I embrace him fully. We sob together at this. Our beautiful secret. Hello? Now what might it be got you down, stranger? I jump at the sudden intrusion into my private moment. A man is at my feet, and for a moment I believe him to be crouched there before I realize that he, standing fully upright, only reaches my belt. His nose is small, and his eyes are quite large, but otherwise he appears normal, with a bald head and bushy black eyebrows burlap sack filled with some type of seed lies at his feet. Hello, I say to this curious man. I thought I was alone here. He cocks his head at me and scratches it in earnest. Now, why would you imagine that? This is Trotted. Didn't read the sign? Where are we, exactly? The man appears dumbfounded gesturing once again to the plain lettering. Can't be more exact than that, I reckon. Thought strikes me, and I move from that line of questioning. Are you Eustace? The man's enormous, bulging eyes light up. Nah, how would you know Eustace? He's not me, no, sir, but he is my pa. 
He'll be working now. At the Crown Inn? Yes, sir. The short man leans onto his tiptoes as if to get a better look at me and grabs at one of his eyebrows. Well, golly me, if it isn't, you are William's son. William, yes, that is me. My name is... William Jr. I am taken aback. Yes, yes, I am William Jr. Your father talked dearly about you. He did. Did he? Why, I was only a boy when he came, but he did that. He points behind him, up into the right of the two caverns beyond the bridge. Ask my pa. He'll be up there, working. Tell him his boy Eustace Jr. sent you. Though I'm sure there's no need. He'll recognize you a mile off him. I thank Eustace Jr. profusely and ask him what it is he's working on to which he responds something about the most important planting being done while the soil is pungent. And I am not sure I understand precisely what he means, but I leave him to it and carry on my way, feeling those enormous eyes on me as I go. The bridge up to the twin sockets is sharp and crooked in a way that again strikes me as familiar. It arcs upward and downward and up again. The curious design, if not oddly ugly, but the path is much smoother than my hike up the hill. And so I quickly find myself within the dark right cavern recess. The blue glow does not follow me here. And so I squint to make out the surprisingly smooth white crag within. This room is several stories tall and larger than I could have imagined. Both holes leading from the bridge and the fields of Trodhead lead to this same natural formation, and its utter emptiness leads me to believe there used to be some great purpose to this room. Something massive and important used to reside here, and it is now entirely missing. I'm sure of it. I amble forward for a time and find a rope lather bathed in an intense blue glow urging me up, and so up I follow. For my efforts, I am greeted with a glorious view of the vast, unknowable expanse of void that lies beyond Trodhead. The fields atop the cliff keep in carefully maintained patches, wetted down and slicked back interspersed with stretches of pale sheen and liver-spotted deposits, beyond which the surging blue pulses outward into an enormity of nothing. I am dwarfed by the blackness that greets me, and I get the feeling, gazing into it, that I can see for miles and miles, and that there is surely nothing there. It implants in my brain very visceral sadness that I can't quite articulate. It is not a fear of the dark that overcomes me, but rather a certainty of non-existence. In this moment, I, a living, breathing creature, mourn this proof of what I had always known, but had never seen. Utter absence, and that sad feeling the one currently warming through my gray matter, articulating its folds and 
showing me exactly the size and scope of my brain. Seems to be speaking to me as it works. Yes, work is the correct word for what it is doing. I am sure of that. It is working on my mind for a specific purpose, one which is unimportant to me and all important for it. I breathe in deeply so that I am not overcome. Wells, I'll be. Eustace's voice is velvety and warm and carries the same lilt as that of his successor. I'd expected to see you, but not quite so soon. There's a certain menace in how he says that, though I am not sure it was intended. I turn to face this hobbling old man. His child's likeness to him is remarkable. The same slight nose, the same massive eyes, the size of twin caverns. It's nice to meet you, Eustace. Willem Jr. Or should I say, Willem III. It is true my grandfather was named William as well, but he obviously did not need my confirmation. Your son told me you would be hard at work up here. He surely did. Mm-hmm. I was told the Crown Inn would be nearby. My father spoke of it. Yes, Wells. New land requires a new settlement, but we shall be built soon enough, and the others will come. Others? Why, our kin and their kind. Is it just you and your son here now? New land, all that. I'm dreadfully sorry for your loss, young Willem. That Eustace knows of my father's passing is not something I take well. Or maybe my sudden guardedness is more due to the worm now bearing down inside my mind, not satisfied with what could be gleamed from the surface. Do you know? The pain beneath my skull is immense now. I'm barely able to maintain my composure, let alone articulate my thoughts. But Eustace seems to know what I meant. He seems to know altogether too much. As well as you do, Willem. You are his, as mine is me. Your son? Well, it's not quite the same, you know. I think you should head on home. You don't belong here. Not yet. But if it answers you want, rest assured you'll have them. Take one last look at Trotty as you pass through the door. I was ready to vomit, and I did not particularly like the tone of Eustace's voice. So I fled down the scalp, down the bridge, past the fields of Trodhead or Heed or Trotted Head. I am unsure which, or whether the name even matters. And I passed by Eustace Jr. as he worked those two bushy fields which flanked the bridge. As I arrived at the green and white door, a thought struck me. Not my own, certainly. One planted by that thing inside my head. And so I followed that narrow cliff face into which the door had been constructed around the side so that I might have a better look at this unfortunate place. And there it was. I saw in profile what exactly trotted head resembled. Or rather, 
what it was. And I let out a shriek that surprised even me. Even the worm inside of me was caught off guard since I could feel its hairs bristle. I don't think I stopped shrieking upon exiting the green door or when I climbed onto the train platform. No, my shuddering cries did not cease until I was in my home, locked away, sobbing into the bathtub with water long since run cold, pelting my scalp in a pathetic attempt to drive away whatever had taken up passage inside of me. Years pass, and I no longer fear a murderer coming for me in the night to do to me what was done so viciously to my father. I no longer have trouble inviting over guests, nor going out for business or pleasure or comfort. To my friends and relatives and co-workers, I am back to proper functioning. But that is only because I cannot see the thing that wriggles up and down my spine at night, taking portions of that precious fruit beneath my skull. Where it goes, I never see, but deep down, I know. A settlement needs its fuel to function, just as sure as it needs its land. I've begun having dreams of my own, now I realize my error, the one I made while watching my father lash about at night, his face purple while he clung desperately onto his neck. He was not wrought with dreams of decapitation, but rather those of tiny little people burrowing deep into his head, taking up residence, harvesting what remained, and building atop their newfound home. My dreams are vivid, too vivid not to be real. Each one begins with a harrowing, a planting season, watering, growth, and after the harvest comes the pillaging and the ruin. Each one ends with my neck separating from my body and crawling out my back door into the garden. Sometimes I wake up and check in the mirror sure everything is still where it ought. I consider calling the forensic examiner, the search dog handler, the detective who continues to work my father's cold case. I could tell them exactly where to find my father's missing piece because I saw it for myself that night. The night I traveled through the green door to gaze upon William Sr.'s trodden head. The Dead Earth Podcast is created by Emily Lyles, Taylor Normington, John Reeder, and Dan Wallace. All stories are crafted by Taylor Normington. Trotted Head was performed by Dan Wallace. Our logo artwork is designed by Chloe Burns. You can find more of our work on Instagram at Tiny Moon Studios. Episodic artwork by Scott Minendorf. <laughs>